Welcome to this edition of the International Association of Arson Investigators CFITrainer.net podcast. As I've discussed in the past months, we're changing things a bit here at the podcast based on your feedback. So let's get right into today's discussion with Dan Abair. He's an IAAI CFI with a long list of credentials in fire investigation. We reached out to Dan because our chairman of the CFITrainer.net steering committee, Kirk Hankins, thought we should share information about how flooding affects investigators. And uh, there have been many recent flooding events in our country, both salt and freshwater. There are some parallels to the Seaside Heights case study podcast that you can listen to on a link from this same page. So, Dan Bear, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're glad you are. So, what are you up to these days? Well, um, as you know, I retired from ATF the end of 2012. So, uh, I am currently working in the private industry for Forensic Investigations Group here in the New Orleans area and, you know, around the South. Good. Well, that'll help us with what we're looking for, because I wanted to find out a little bit from you about some of your experience related to flooding, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Bobby Shaw, who vets experts for CFITrainer.net, recommended you because of your extensive work following Hurricane Katrina. So I'm wondering, what did you learn from Katrina? Um, How did it affect your investigations there? Well, um, you know, when you're talking about an event like Katrina or the recent flooding in Baton Rouge, they both have similarities and some distinct differences. Uh, I'd say that in Katrina, of course, your job description can sort of change, you know, as far as working with someone like ATF, where the fire investigation takes a back burner to, for a while for rescues and clearing out hospitals, uh, trying to get people to safety and moving people out of town and getting supplies to people. And, I, you know, it's not just ATF, of course. The uh, fire marshal's office and everyone was kind of responsible for doing that as well. So, you know, there's a, you take on more responsibilities, not just fire investigation at that point. Yeah, and I bet a lot of people uh, really appreciated that extra care. So once you got to the stage where you were working on investigations, my understanding is there were fires in that area uh, that you had to go in and work. Absolutely. Uh, As far as Katrina uh, and Rita, it's a bit unique from regular flooding because it was several months in some cases before the levees were rebuilt and the water went down. You had a lot of situations where you were called to go investigate this fire. And of course, when you were finally able to get there, you had a structure that from six feet down is standing uh, that was protected by floodwaters, but from six feet up, there is absolutely nothing left, no roof, no anything, because it burned up, and of course the fire stopped at the water line, which begs the question, at that point, how does a house that's flooded catch fire? That's always an interesting thing to try to figure out. That sounds pretty bizarre. What other things do you see after a flood that are unique? Well, one of the things that's unique about it is there are the patterns don't always represent what you expect on a regular uh, fire scene. For instance, a lot of the patterns, I remember going into one house where the bottom of it, it had been flooded and the bottom of the couch was burned. Now, of course, everything was askew and kind of spread out everywhere. So here you are trying to figure out how the bottom of a couch is burned when the top of the couch is not burned, nor is anything around it burned. 
and then you realize after talking to the owners that a lot of their things had been put elevated, like couches and things like that had been put on countertops or on tables, expecting that if there is a possibility of getting a few inches of water, they wouldn't lose things as the couch. So you had a fire that burned down because the couch was upside down on the kitchen counter. So you had burning to the bottom of the couch, but when the floodwaters lifted it and put out the fire, eventually when the investigation came, you found a couch with the bottom burned and the top wasn't burned, but no more burning anywhere at lower levels because it was protected by floodwaters. So it's a greater part of the puzzle that as fire investigators we have to put together. Yeah, it's interesting. When I when you first started talking about that, I thought, well, maybe the fire happened before the flood. Exactly. And that is a possibility, but that's one of the things you have to figure out because there are, you know, there's human nature out there. There are people that do bad things for self-preservation. You have a lot of people that are in flood zones that don't require flood insurance. But if they have wind damage or fire damage, it's covered. And here they are looking at five feet of water in their house that isn't going to be covered at all by insurance. Next thing you know, the house is on fire. So as an investigator, that's one of the things you have to figure out. Is this something natural that happened or someone trying to make sure that they get insurance money out of uh, their insurance company? Yeah. And I'm also wondering about um, after a flood, other types of ignition sources. Well, that, that's interesting. In both after Katrina and the recent flooding in Baton Rouge area, and I've talked to people that experienced the same thing in the recent flooding in Texas and uh, Arkansas, Florida, there's tons of debris that has to be ripped out. I know myself, I help friends cutting out drywall. You have to throw everything out once it floods from the water above the water line down everything has to go because even if you think you can reuse it you got you can never clean it good enough because you're always going to have these mold issues which is also a safety issue for fire investigators that come in when you see mold climbing up the wall and you're out there having an investigator spending hours and hours in there but uh, the point is you have all this and all this debris and there's something happens in the mentality of people when they get sick and tired of looking at debris, you start getting all these little nuisance fires of the debris piles itself, which is usually not that big a deal, but I worked one recently where that debris pile spread and eventually got under a covered parking area near the apartment complex. It banked into, the covered parking caused the fire to bank into the house and catch the house on fire. So these debris piles can be very dangerous, and sometimes they sit there for months. I had never thought about that. Here I was thinking about electrical. Yeah, well, that, that electrical is one of the bigger problems. But again, these little fires and these debris piles, people drive by every day. And I, I've experienced both where it's just someone has matches and figures, ah, let me just light this on fire because they're doing something wrong. And others, it just becomes a mental thing for them. They, they just start burning debris piles, get rid of them, but you never know how, where that'll lead. Yeah, I can understand that. That's the way I feel about my backyard often. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering about the electrical. Um, you come in, let's say, you know, the water is subsided and uh, you're an investigator. What's the normal condition of the house and, and what are you looking at? Well, you're looking at complete destruction. A lot of times, as far as things like Katrina, one of the issues 
and I'll get to the electrical, but just to kind of give you how bad it can actually be, you can't fight a fire without water, and it pretty much wiped out the whole infrastructure of New Orleans. So even on a minor fire, you'd get there, and everything would be collapsed because the only way to fight the fire would be those helicopters that would use those giant bags used for firefighting uh, or wildland fires. That's how we were putting out fires in New Orleans. They would actually drop them on the building. You got tons of water dropping on the roof of a building. So you'd get there, and you pretty much have nothing to look at. But one of the things with, especially if it's hurricane-related, there's also damage, always damage and flooding to the electrical system because it gets soaked in water, and when the water subsides, you still got the electrical issues. But in, especially in hurricanes, the thing is, right before the hurricane makes impact, the electrical companies intentionally shut the electricity down. Usually people think, oh, the electricity's out because the storm's hitting. No, they turn it off to protect the system. The problem is a lot of people evacuate and leave their power on, which is a bad idea because your power is going to get turned off simply to protect the power grid. So while they're gone, you have a hurricane coming through. It can knock down trees. It could damage your property. And you're not even at home. And then when the storm is through, you've got the power company that starts to get things back up and running, and they're turning on grid by, the grid square by square. And next thing you know, there's house fires and business fires all over the place because they're energizing lines that are now damaged. And, you know, sometimes transformers are damaged from trees falling or whatever and causes power surges. So even if your power is not damaged, you can have a fire just from a power surge from the electric company just by turning the system back on. So we get a lot of, we see a lot of that just from people leaving their system on when they evacuate. So Dan, what have you seen or what do you know about the effects of water on electrical systems inside of a house, whether it's fresh water or salt water? Well, as far as uh, the electrical system goes, it's not a good thing when your house gets flooded, whether it's fresh or salt. Uh, some of the things are similar, but some of the things are completely different. For instance, if, if water floods a house and it's fresh water, uh, when that house, even once the water drains out, some of the wiring actually has paper insulation that can hold water. And uh, if your house was left on and the power comes back on and re-energized, you can have arcing due to the moisture in the wiring itself. And that doesn't matter whether it's fresh water or salt water. But one of the issues for those on the coast, particularly hurricanes, that gets, they get storm surge that gets really high and uh, attacks the electrical system, well, that's salt water. And that, even after it drains out and you remove the drywall and you're looking at the electrical system, it looks fine. But there's salt water in that system. And if you put that drywall back up over time, corrosion will take place, and that's a tremendous fire hazard as the guys out there know so as an investigator if you know you're in an area or a flood zone where it's flooded previously uh and you had a fire you want to ask the homeowner or who's that, whoever is responsible say did this house flood if so how much water did it get you know was it four feet well if your outlets are at 16 inches you might want to find out was all the wiring taken out above the flood line and changed or did a professional come in and make sure everything was okay? If not, 
that would be something you can look at as a possible cause of your fire. I know from some of the folks that I know who have properties out near the coast, they have to go in and check their electrical systems just because of the humidity in the sea air and how it affects their electrical inside their homes. That's actually true. Uh, just high humidity can do the same thing just because of the salt in the air. So that's something else to think about. All right. You mentioned something else uh, when we had spoken before about gas. Well, yeah. Uh, one of the things that we've seen happening, and uh, I, I don't know the exact cause because I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm an expert on gas flow, uh, but one of the things we do see, you get a lot of gas fires and explosions, and it has to do with something that the floodwaters get up above the gas lines or the gas meters causing overpressure. And the, the system is designed to release gas if the pressure gets too heavy. Of course, now you're in, when it starts to release this gas, you're introducing water into the gas system, and uh, that causes more overpressure. And next thing you know, you've got gas filling up a building, and a lot of bad things can happen when that happens. So if you have a gas system and you have a flooding, that's something else you need to be concerned and cognizant of when you're doing the investigation. Some of these fires, you know, that happen maybe years after. Um, do you always know that a house has been affected by a flood when you come in to do an investigation? Well, you usually can tell um, because, as a general rule, the drywall, when you see the damaged walls and things like that, if the drywall uh, has been replaced four feet down, there's a good chance that it was uh, a house by Katrina because that's the size of a drywall sheet or, or flooding. Because the easy thing is just to cut it four feet all around the house so that you don't have to cut the drywall. So, yes, you can see it new insulation, different types of insulation, things like that. But, you know, in truth, years later, there's nothing from the flooding that should, or at least I haven't experienced it yet, that a fire years later has anything to do with an earlier fire. Got it. So a big part of the reason for doing this podcast about flooding was it seems like we're getting flooding in places that we didn't use to. So we wanted to raise some awareness um, to the folks, you know, who are maybe for the first time getting hammered in North Carolina or South Carolina uh, or, you know, many of the rivers I know up in Vermont back, you know, when one of the storms hit, places where they just weren't used to it. Do you have any um, thoughts for fire investigators in those areas, maybe special tools that they should think about or tactics that they should use when they're investigating after a flood? Well, I know a lot of people really don't like wearing the respirators when on a fire scene. Of course, we know about all the health issues that can come with the carcinogens we breathe in every day. Well, when you go on in a, into a flooded property, there are mold spores and some really nasty things that are in every one of these houses that could do some really bad things to your lungs and to your health. So it's very important when you work these floods, don't forget to wear your respirator. You have to wear it because you may be sorry in the long run. There are some really bad cancers and different things that can come from breathing this stuff in. That's why it's so important to the homeowners to get rid of everything that touched floodwaters. Makes a lot of sense. I know there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis on that in uh, the safety training that we get involved in and the cancer awareness. Um, I'm wondering, you have anything you want to share? You had mentioned Bobby Shaw earlier. Uh, as our time as fire investigators with ATF, 
I know that at one point you're talking about other jobs or other responsibilities as described. It's kind of funny. Uh, now it's funny. It wasn't funny then, but we were evacuating Tulane Medical Center, or at least the helicopters were, and here's these two fire investigators that uh, get approached by the uh, medevac helicopter say, that said that some of the helicopters are reporting getting shot at. So next thing you know, we're evacuating the uh Tulane Medical Center sitting door gunner on a ambulance on a air flight. So other duties as described, I think, is the way they called it. So you never know what's going to happen when you're out there and things go crazy. And once again, I'm sure everybody uh, that was down there really appreciates the help that you guys provided. I appreciate your time, Dan. I hope to see you at ITC in Vegas. And I know a lot of folks are grateful for the work that you and the IWI Foundation do. Well, thank you very much, and I certainly plan to be there. We'll see you then. Thanks again, Dan. All right, thank you. Now let's talk to Trace Lawless. He's with the T&E Committee, or Training and Education for the International Association of Arson Investigators. Trace, how are you? I'm fine today, Rod. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Hey, you know, we got to start talking about ITC for this spring and, and and the year after that in 2000, what, that's 18. So what's, uh, what's up for ITC 2017? ITC uh, Las Vegas, uh, April 9th through April 14th. It will, uh, we're well underway with that curriculum and getting the presenters set. Uh, we're real excited about it. We're going to kick off that program this year uh, after the opening ceremonies with a presentation from uh, retired ATF agent Mike Bregan, uh, CFI. He's got a... Uh, a convicted arsonist he's bringing to uh, speak live to the uh, attendees. Uh, he was convicted of arson and insurance fraud for over 70 fires over uh, several years, and uh, Mike Bergan was able to uh, get him to come down and uh, give us the facts of how he did it, uh, how he was able to work the systems from the insurance fraud side, and uh, you know a personal contact on how he intentionally set these fires to defraud the insurance companies. Along with that, uh, we're really excited about the offering of the uh, insurance track at this year's ITC. Um, we're going to be doing that in cooperation with the International, or excuse me, the Insurance Committee for Arson Control, and um, that'll be 16 hours of insurance offerings directly related to fire investigation, explosion investigations, and um, so that'll be a, a track. We've had it in the past, and we're going to kick it back into its efforts this year and uh, offer that for the insurance-related side of the business also. Awesome. I know a lot of people that are involved in insurance have always been or continue to be involved with the IAAI. Anything else that you wanted to tell me about? I'm going to uh, make a phone call after this to check in with what happened over the past month with Kate Reed, but uh, thinking you might have other things you want to chat with, but chat about or... Recommend to everybody, uh, as you mentioned before, Rod, is uh, firearson.com. We have all the listings of all the uh, offerings. If you're interested in having an offering at your location, please give Kate Reed or myself a call or an email. I'll be more than happy to uh, talk with you and see what we can work out. Remember, we're here for the membership, and uh, without the membership, uh, we don't exist. I appreciate your time, Trace. Again, that's Trace Lawless. He's the chairman of the Training and Education Committee for the International Association of Arson Investigators. Thanks for your time, Trace. Thank you, Rod. All right, you be well. 
Hey, love. Kate Reed, Rod Ammon calling from CFI Trainer. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. And yourself? I'm doing well. I just got off the phone with Trace Lawless, and we were talking about things involved in training and education, and uh, we were sort of looking forward. I thought I'd give uh, you an opportunity to talk about what happened recently. Um, I was down at the complex fire investigation for the insurance industry that we put on with ATF at their facility at, in Cedar at Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, and the weather was beautiful. We had uh, a great crowd of attendees. We had 42 attendees. We had three gentlemen from Brazil, and we had a gentleman from South Africa who took quite a long time getting there, and he loved the class. So we had a great um, diversity of people at the class. And, of course, we had all of those great, wonderful instructors. We have 12 different instructors from the ATF and IAAI. And it went beautifully. So tell me again, how many people? 42. Isn't that sort of a big class? Yes, that is. It's um, a third more than what we had last year. That's good news. Shows interest. Yes, lots of interest. And we had a great mix of male and female, insurance industry, public. And as I said, these three gentlemen from Brazil are engineers. And they got allowed out of it. I've been receiving emails from people saying how wonderful it was, and they really appreciate getting the information about it to attend it. Well, I am very grateful for your report on going down there. I, I do have to remind people or tell people that uh, you did get three flat tires on three individual <laughs> rental cars. Yes. I thought that was uh, pretty amazing, but maybe you've got to stay away from construction sites. So, uh, where, when are you going on the road again? Uh, myself, I am not going on the road anytime soon, but we are currently still running classes all the time, putting them together in different locations. In fact, we've got an expert witness coming here to Crofton at the headquarters in December. And then with the new year, Pennsylvania is strong with uh, a 40-hour class a electrical aspect class, and a forensic photography class, all in the first three months of the year. Awesome. So I'm going to just tell people, uh, get over to www.firearson.com and click on the training button if you want to find out. And there's a training calendar that has a list of those events, correct? Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Kate. All right, darling. And that about wraps it up for our podcast this month. I appreciate all of you that check in with us on a regular basis. And I hope you tell some of the folks uh, that you're in touch with in the fire investigation field to check in with us again on the podcast. Again, we're trying to keep things a little bit tighter. We're also trying to make sure we get involved in case studies and some more relevant issues, uh, you know, to the time frame. Things that are more recent to all of us. With that, I'd like to say thank you very much to Dan Hebert, Trace Lawless, and Kate Reed from the IWI office. Thanks to all of you, and have a good day. I hope you all also have a very nice Thanksgiving holiday. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.